And then just a few days after that, a Missourian, and he he actually was born in Virginia, moved to Missouri, named Henry Clay Pate. He is deputized as a U.S. deputy marshal. He hears about what's happened along the Pottawatomie Creek. And what does he decide to do? He decides he is going to get Brown and his sons and bring them to justice. This is Sean Radcliffe. That's Dr. Jonathan Hart, the executive director of the Blackjack Battlefield and Nature Park in Wellsville, Kansas, helping us to understand what happened at the Blackjack Battle in June of 1856 and why it happened. Stick around for the whole story on this episode of Preservation Oaks. Welcome to another episode of Preservation Oaks. In this series, we introduce you to professionals from museums, cultural, genealogical, and historical societies across the United States. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the program. the United States, all across the world, you're listening to the Preservation Oaks podcast here on MicroStream Radio. We release a new episode every two weeks for your listening enjoyment, and all we ask is that you click the follow button on preservationoaks.podbean.com. Hey, this is Sean Radcliffe coming to you from Salt Lake City, and this is Preservation Oaks, the internationally syndicated original talk program on MicroStream Radio, where we feature interviews with professionals from museums, cultural and heritage institutions, historical and genealogical societies across the United States. Thanks for listening. By the way, our main platform is preservationoaks.podbean.com, but we're also on almost every podcast platform as well as Odyssey and YouTube. So wherever you listen to the program, I appreciate it very much when you like, comment, follow, or subscribe. We trust that people want to have a better understanding of these precious organizations. We make listeners aware of how the organization is supported, how each is unique to the communities they serve, what programs and events they currently have underway, and what services they offer to the public and their members. We believe this information is vital for people to know how to work with these organizations and how important it is to join, support, volunteer with, and donate to one or more of these core societies. Remember that your donations are tax-deductible. Each guest organization on Preservation Oaks brings with them a truly unique perspective around how they tell the story of their communities, how they continue to be relevant for the times in which we live, and what kinds of exhibits and volunteer opportunities they have created. This makes listening to each episode of the program interesting, fun, and diverse. If you're listening and you'd like to be a guest on the program, or if you have questions or comments about the program, Spin off an email to preservationoaks at gmail.com. All right, that being said, let's get this show snapping. 
Our November events for this episode, on November 2nd, 1955, Jim Henson's Kermit the Frog, the first Muppet, was copyright registered. On November the 3rd, 1903, Listerine was trademark registered. On November 12th, 1940, Batman, the original comic strip, was trademark registered. On November 25th, 1975, Robert S. Ledley was granted patent number 3,922,522 for diagnostic x-ray systems, known as the CAT scan. On November 28, 1905, Arm & Hammer baking soda was trademark registered. On November 30, 1858, John Mason patented the screw-neck bottle called the Mason Jar. Happy birthday to Adolf Sax, who was a Belgium musician who invented the saxophone. He was born on November 6, 1814. Happy birthday to Jack Kilby, who was an American scientist who invented the integrated circuit. Yep, the microchip. He was born on November 8, 1923. Now here's a couple of jokes. When I graduated from high school, my teachers told me I'd never amount to much since I procrastinate so much. I told them, you just wait. What do you get when you cross a dyslexic, an insomniac, and an agnostic? You get someone who lays awake at night wondering if there's a dog. All right, let's drink some tea, some Twining's tea. Love Twining's tea. Mmm, that's hot. Okay, now you can email us anytime at preservationoaks at gmail.com. Preservation Oaks is available for listeners on nearly all podcast platforms, as well as Facebook, Odyssey, and YouTube. On our next episode of Preservation Oaks, I'll be tackling listener questions and giving you answers. For this episode, today we have a great program as we greet Dr. Jonathan Hart, the Executive Director of the Blackjack Battlefield and Nature Park, located in Wellsville, Kansas. I bet you don't know where the first actual battle of the Civil War really occurred. Well, you're about to find out. If you're a resident in the local area of Wellsville, Kansas... This episode will help you understand what the organization has to offer, how you can participate and take advantage of the worthwhile events the organization sponsors, and how to best support them by volunteering and donating. All right, let's get going. Welcome to the program, Dr. Hart. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Hey, you know, you are the executive director of the Blackjack Battlefield and Nature Park. In school, yes. I was taught that the Civil War started with the attack on Fort Sumter on April 12, 1861. And we were taught about Harper's Ferry and how John Brown and his guys were, you know, attacked it. And then subsequently they were killed and some of them were arrested. But when I read about this battle, I now know that it really began much earlier. Can you tell us the history of the Blackjack Battlefield? Yeah. And so I think to answer that question specifically, we actually have to talk about the, the mid-1850s, 1856 in particular. This is a time when Kansas is not a state. It is up for statehood. And they are allowing what they call popular sovereignty. So they're allowing the folks that come and live here in the state to determine whether Kansas will become a slave state or a free state. And while that sounds really great in, in theory, what ended up happening on the ground was you had folks from Missouri, Missouri was a slave state, that were coming in in droves, voting, being sold, uh, you know, very uh, deceptively, being sold maybe one square foot of ground for, you know, uh, a few cents. And then they had a legal right to go and vote. 
And so 1856 really is the year that that becomes what we refer to as bleeding Kansas. There's a lot of things that happen in 1856, not the least of which are the events immediately before the Battle of Blackjack. And in order to understand that, you have to kind of understand these events that are happening. So May 21st of 1856, you have the burning and the sacking of the Free State Hotel burning of Lawrence. Border ruffians are coming in. Uh, You've got Samuel Jones, a sheriff uh, that that is coming in and they're attacking Lawrence. They also capture an artillery piece and might be able to put that into context as we go through the story. But I just want to point that out here. John Brown hears of this and he's trying to ready men. He wants to go and he's, you know, he his through the 1850s, he sends his sons to Kansas. He decides to come to Kansas. He was not born in Kansas, not a Kansas native, but he does come to Kansas and he begins to develop this idea that, you know, the, the peaceful way of, of trying to get uh, slaves to be freed, the, the diplomatic way of doing that, the legislative way of doing that, it's probably not going to work. He is starting to develop this idea that it's going to have to happen through bloodshed and war. And so he comes to Kansas. He hears about this battle that's happening May 21st of 1856 there in Lawrence, and he's trying to gather men. He wants to go and fight this battle. And by the time he gets there, the whole thing is pretty much over. And he's upset about that. The very next day, on the 22nd of May, 1856, Charles Sumner is caned on the floor of the U.S. Senate. So this is in Washington, D.C. A senator gets up to speak in defense of abolitionism and and basically putting down the things that are happening in Kansas. And he is caned very nearly to death. In fact, he receives disabilities from this beating that are with him for the rest of his life. So it's really sort of a, a period. So John Brown hears about this and he's also under threat. So John Brown had received death threats. He has become a very public figure at this point. People know his stance on uh, abolitionism and, and uh, wanting to free slaves. And there are threats to himself, to his family. And he, he takes the threats fairly seriously. So just a few nights later, uh, and the 24th, the evening of the 24th, after dark, and into the morning of the 25th, they go up north of the Pottawatomie Creek, and they knock on, on homes. They're knocking on doors. U.S. Army, send your men to the door. And then they would promptly take the men out into the woods and kill them. This became known as the Pottawatomie Creek Massacre. And I think for the, for the, for the reasons that he wasn't able to fight at Lawrence, uh, there are death threats on his family, although the homes that he's pulling people out of and, and, and having them killed, he, he says later that he never actually gave the order, but he was in charge of the group, which was a few of his sons and a couple of other men. He was in charge of the group that went around and did this, the Pottawatomie Creek Massacres. So it seems unlikely to me that he didn't know they were happening or didn't give consent to it to happen. But so, so these, these men are being dragged from their home. They're, they're being killed. Uh, They're being killed with, of all things, an artillery short sword. So earlier I said, I was going to make the connection to the cannon that was taken in Lawrence. Now we don't have anything to definitively say this, but as a historian, I'm going to say, 
It's very interesting that they choose an artillery broadsword, which is a short sword. It's it's not it's a primarily a decorative sword at this point for uh, artillery in the military in the 1850s and into the 1860s. You could use it to maybe hack some brush to set an artillery piece, but it's really just kind of a decorative thing. But they choose to use this sword. Now, they choose an edged weapon over a gun because at night, sound will carry quite a distance. So we're not going to use guns. But they could have used any edge weapon. I think the fact that they use an artillery short sword, I think that may have some connection to the fact that an artillery piece was taken in the sacking of Lawrence. So anyway, so these men are being hacked to death. And John Brown, all of these things are happening. He's upset. He, he wants maybe some retribution. So these killings take place, Pottawatomie Creek Massacre. And then just a few days after that, a Missourian, and he, he actually was born in Virginia, moved to Missouri, named Henry Clay Pate. He is deputized as a U.S. deputy marshal. He hears about what's happened along the Pottawatomie Creek. And what does he decide to do? He decides he is going to get Brown and his sons and bring them to justice. So there is a, there's some question whether or not he had a legitimate arrest warrant or whether he was just saying he had an arrest warrant, but he rounds up a, a bunch of men in Missouri and he puts together what becomes known as Shannon's Sharpshooters. Now, the reason they're called Shannon's Sharpshooters is because they were named in honor of Governor Shannon, they are given arms from the federal arsenal. So so let's think about this for a second. A U.S. deputy marshal, a man that is representing the U.S. federal government, arms a group of men with federal arms and munitions and comes into Kansas to find and potentially kill, but certainly to bring to justice, John Brown and his sons right so this is why we call this the first battle right because when you think about a battle you think you know it's it's done by a government well he's acting on behalf of a government whether or not the government knows about it that's another story yeah so he comes to brown station which is where in, in kansas which is where brown and his family live brown's not there several of his sons hide they're able to capture two sons john jr and jason And they promptly give them, which interestingly enough, John Jr. and Jason were not a part of the Pottawatomie Creek Massacre. They weren't sons that John Brown took with him. They give these two sons over to the U.S. Cavalry, and then they're looking for a place to stay. They're border ruffians. This is something that is happening regularly. They go into Palmyra which sits about where the high school in Baldwin City is now. Baldwin City didn't exist in 1856, but there was a little town of Palmyra. They go in, they sack it, they take what they want, and then they settle into a place that was called Blackjack Campground. It was named because of a small group of blackjack oak trees that grew. And this ground, which is where the battlefield sits, has two natural springs on it. They feed two creeks that intersect, forming sort of a a Y configuration. And he thinks, well, it's just next to the Santa Fe Trail, which is a a major, think of it like the highway system today. Many people are using it, not necessarily to go to Santa Fe, but if you're traveling 
somewhere and you can use a piece of the Santa Fe Trail, well, you're going to use it because it's an established trail. So he goes to this campground, which is where people have brought their animals and it's got water. I mean, it's got all the things you think of when you think of a nice campground. He decides that this is where he's going to camp. They camp there that night. The next morning, a couple of Pate's men decide they're going to go over to Prairie City and repeat this sacking looting process. What they didn't realize, this was a Sunday morning, what they didn't realize is there was a revival in Prairie City. So they get over to Prairie City, and the men, who had also, by the way, heard that there were border ruffians, there were Missourians in the area, they had all gone to church with their rifles. And, by the way, there was more of them because there was a revival. They had posted pickets. A couple of shots ring out. Most of Pate's men retreat. A couple of them are captured. And one of them, very bold and brazenly, gives up the location of Pate. He says, well, you just come, you just, you just come see Pate. He's, he's out there at Blackjack Campground. You just go out there and, and he'll, he'll deal with all of you. <laughs> so Samuel Shore is in charge of a small a group of militiamen, abolitionists, and they learn where Brown's sons are. By this point, Brown has already learned that his sons are missing. And he's trying to find Pate, but has no idea where he is. So Shore and his militia meet John Brown and his militia. And we're probably talking somewhere between 30 and 50 men-ish uh, between both, both of those militia groups. Tells John Brown where his sons are. And John Brown hatches a plan that becomes the Battle of Blackjack. He makes a decision that they are going to cross the prairie at night and they will attack Pate and his men just before dawn on June 2nd, 1856. So June 2nd was also, interestingly enough, was a new moon. So if you can imagine walking through waist-high grass, and if you've ever walked through a field of any kind, you know that it's difficult to get your footing anyway. Now do it with no lantern, no light, and no moonlight. All right. <laughs> it's a difficult thing. Yeah. It takes them a lot longer to cross the, the cross the prairie to get to Pate's position. And what happens is you have that thin silhouette of light just over the horizon that comes out. One of Pate's men who is posted as a picket sees some movement. He doesn't know what it is, but he fires at it. He, he opens fire. Brown's men fire back, and that begins the Battle of Blackjack. And this is like four in the morning or something? Yeah, between four or five thirty, somewhere around that. Just I mean, right as that little bit of sliver of light comes over yeah. the horizon. Wow. Um, just enough that they could make out some shadows moving. Yes. And so the gunfire uh, goes off, Pate's men are alerted, they come up, they have a wagon that they had gotten. They flip the wagon over to use it to fire from behind. Funny thing about wood wagons, they don't stop bullets very well. <laughs> and so Pate's men eventually have to pull back into a creek bed. John Brown and Samuel Shore, which are these two militia captains, they're coming down. And Brown tells Shore to swing around and basically try to flank Pate and his men. Well, it's an open area. I mean, this is this is an empty field. There's there's a few trees that are blackjack. It's a small clump of blackjack trees, but everything else is completely out in the open. And Shore and his men are coming down a hill and they get pinned, pinned down. Basically, they, they, they can't continue moving. 
So Brown's men come up and they use wagon swales and they use the creek bed ultimately. Um, and so this, this battle, most of it is fought basically from creek bed to creek bed on the battlefield. And we're talking well within, uh, well within a rifle distance uh, or a, a musket distance at this time, hmm. right? And so the other thing you have to you have to understand is how militias get started. It was your civic duty in the 1850s to serve in a militia, and it wasn't like um, you know National Guard groups today. It was. You're hanging out basically at your at your local your local bar, your local brewery, whatever you you know, and you're hanging out with your friends and you're talking, and somebody says, "Hey, you know, we should form a militia." Well, that sounds like a good idea, and you know what? We like that guy the best, so he's going to be the captain. So when I use terms like Captain John Brown or Captain Samuel Shore or Captain Henry Clay Pate, these are not military trained individuals. These, these are guys that have gone out with their rifles, with their muskets, primarily muskets. Um, and the only thing they hunt are things that don't hunt them back, you know, animals. Right. And now they're drawing down on a human being. And the romanticism of war wears off very quickly. <laughs> like in about two <laughs> seconds when that first bullet goes by. Exactly. Yes. Um, and so... Nobody is killed through the Battle of Blackjack. It lasts about three hours, a little, maybe a little longer. And at one point, partway through the battle, Henry Clay Pate has his subordinate, uh, W.B. Brockett, that's his lieutenant, and send up a white flag and basically go across to negotiate. Um, you have to understand Henry Clay Pate is in unfamiliar territory. He's not, I mean, obviously he's not at his home state of Missouri and they're in a very unfriendly area. So he never, he doesn't know if there's going to be some reinforcements coming uh, and he doesn't know how many people oppose him, right? Because this, this all got kicked off basically in the dark. So Pate doesn't know how many men Brown has. He doesn't even know that it's Brown across the way. Uh, he just assumes that, you know, for all he knows, these could be some men from Prairie City or Palmyra seeking retribution for what he had done, he and his men had done. And Brown is kind of strategic about this, and he tells his men when they get down into the creek bed, he said, when you come up and shoot and you go back down, move. Don't come up in the same place twice. That way they can't get a count on us, and it works. <laughs> so so Peyton doesn't know how many men he's got, so he sends his lieutenant, Brockett, over uh, to maybe negotiate, not realizing that this is Brown. Brockett goes over and sees Brown, and Brown says, I won't deal with anybody but your commander. Go back and send your commander out. So then Pate comes across, meets Brown. Pate realizes that it's Brown. Uh, Brown demands Pate's unconditional surrender, and Pate having realized that it's Brown, says, no, I demand your unconditional surrender and I'm going to arrest you. Well, you can imagine that doesn't go over well. So they end up going back to their separate sides and the battle continues. Bullets continue flying. Now, I said, remember these Missourians, they're not at home. And some of these Missourians are looking around thinking, this is not what I signed up for. 
Mm. I don't want to be killed. And then Brown sends his best shots to go and start shooting out Pate's horses. Well, you're out a lot of money in the 1850s if you lose a good horse. Yeah. Um, imagine buying a new car today and, and somebody just blowing it up and there's no insurance. You're just out. Right. That's an expensive thing. Not to mention, it is a very long and dangerous walk back to Missouri. Right. 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 So more and more of Pate's men start to kind of fall back, get on their horses and leave. And this angers John Brown because he wants 100 percent surrender. These men have his sons. He doesn't yet know that they have given his sons to the cavalry, but they have taken his sons. He wants complete and total surrender. So he turns to one of his sons, Frederick, and he says, take a couple of men, go around the back, go out and around and go around the backside of their position and prevent these men from leaving. And that's what they do. And when they get there, Frederick comes riding up on his horse into the middle between these two sides, between the two creek beds, and he's waving his hand around and he says, Father, we have them surrounded and have cut off their lines of communication. Well, Pate takes this to mean that reinforcements have arrived. Ah. And so the white flag immediately goes up and Pate goes over to negotiate. And Pate and Brown are trying to negotiate this. Pate's realizing this may not go very well. Um, John Brown uh, is obviously not going to allow himself to be arrested. And at that time, two of Brown's men came out and around and came behind Pate. And basically, even if Pate had said, no, I'm not surrendering to you, he was basically surrounded uh, by, by men. They, they, they planned to take him by force. And so they eventually draw up an article they exchange uh, for, for exchange of, of men and Pate says, look, I don't have your sons. And, and Brown saying, well, we'll use the two of you, you two men, we will use to exchange our sons. We'll go to the U.S. Cavalry, the first U.S. Cavalry, and we will use, use you guys to exchange. And that's exactly what they do. And so earlier when I talked about the caning of uh, Charles Sum Sumner on the, the floor of the Senate, his cousin, Edwin Sumner, or Bull Sumner, is the first cavalry commander in Kansas Territory. Oh. So he's essentially the one that's kind of oversee this uh, exchange, or at least he, he's, he's aware of it. He sends a lieutenant by the name of Jeb Stewart, and that name should sound familiar because he becomes one of the most infamous or famous, whichever you whichever you see, uh, cavalry commanders of the American Civil War. And Lieutenant Jeb Stewart is in charge of this exchange, and so Stewart and Brown meet each other. Now this becomes important because at Harper's Ferry. After the fire, John Brown, which, by the way, when John Brown was in Kansas, he had no facial hair. 
He didn't have the beard that we all know him to have. He didn't grow that beard until he left Kansas, and he did that to disguise himself. And so the beard that he has at Harper's Ferry, when they bring him out of Harper's Ferry and everything's, you know, uh, in confusion and they're trying to figure out who Brown is, it is Jeb Stewart that recognizes and identifies John Brown. And he, he was, make no mistake, he was no... Uh, friend of John Brown. He, he did not like the man. In fact, he, he wrote about it and said he had a particular distaste for that man, huh. uh, not just because of his ideology, but just the way he acted. He, he did not think John Brown acted in a very chivalrous manner. And so, so there's kind of an interesting little, little quirk to that, to that piece as well. Another twist in this in this story, as we go further into the American Civil War, Jeb Stewart and Henry Clay Pate are both in the cavalry, and they both die at Yellow Tavern. Uh, Henry Clay Pate is put in charge of the left flank of the uh, of the Confederate uh, left, the cavalry, and he dies holding the left in the same battle. Jeb Stewart is mortally wounded and dies a few days later. And so Jeb Stewart and Henry Clay Pate were actually friends. They knew each other. So very interesting sort of connections uh, that uh, that come out of this. So Henry Clay Pate was an official federal marshal. Is that right? Yes, he was deputized as a marshal. Yes. And so... What is a federal marshal doing going in and raiding Palmyra? So you could argue that what he was doing was not an official act. He uses the fact that he is a U.S. deputy marshal when it is convenient. From, from, a, from a legal perspective, he has no right to go in and sack Palmyra. That's what but, I was thinking. Yeah, but, but he does it anyway. Now, I'm sure he's probably not riding around flashing his badge. He's only flashing his badge when he's trying to arrest folks, which, by the way, there was nothing absolutely concrete linking John Brown at that time, linking John Brown and his sons to the Pottawatomie Creek Massacre. There was one witness that said that he that it was Brown, but nobody knew for certain. And there certainly was was no proof. And so you can imagine trying to get an arrest warrant, well, that probably would have been a sticky thing. So there's there's some contention. There are some historians that say he had a phony arrest warrant written by one of the judges in Missouri. There are others that say he didn't. He was just acting on his own volition and just said he had a warrant because he, he didn't show it. But in his mind, you've got to get rid of the opposition. And the biggest opposition right now, though at least the most vocal, is John Brown. Right. So if, if we can link him to a heinous crime and get rid of him, so much the better. Right. And what was he after in Palmyra? Was he after John Brown or what was he really after? He was just trying to get supplies. I mean, yeah, I suppose it was always there looking for John Brown in places that he might be, but that doesn't excuse the sacking. That doesn't excuse going in and taking goods and, and, and wagons full of supplies. Right. And he does that because, of course, they're not in Missouri, right? They, they you only bring so much with you when you're on horseback because they're moving swiftly. Um, you don't bring a lot of stuff. And so you just kind of take what you need and subsist off of and at the expense of other people. All right. Yep. Yeah, that makes sense. 
<laughs> you know, I, I always tell folks, Kansas is one of these really interesting places um, because you see a lot of things play out in Kansas before they play out on the national stage. So certainly you see the Battle of Blackjack sort of foreshadowing the American Civil War and the bloodshed that was that was coming. You have the same thing in Prohibition, right? Kansas started uh, Prohibition long ago. In fact, it shaped Kansas as a state. Right. Um, they didn't want to be associated with the, the prostitutes and the drinkers and the, the miners that were out uh, at the foothills of the Rockies. They didn't want the state to continue out that far and continues today. I mean, there's still places in Kansas where you can't sell alcohol after a certain time and you can't sell it on Sunday. You wow. Know. You mentioned no one got killed in this battle. Yes. So there were a few that were shot, but nobody died on the ground. I think that's amazing. Well, and part of that goes back to, again, uh, if you're used to drawing down, you know, looking down your, your, your musket at, at, a, at a deer or at something that's going to be your, your dinner, that's very different than drawing down and looking another man. Yeah. And so I, I think that probably is, is part of it. And the other part, you know, if you haven't been trained um, to stay calm, it can be very unnerving once the bullets start flying, your heart starts beating, you get that sort of tunnel vision and, you know, you, you might not be aiming down. You might be just trying to, to throw as, as many rounds uh, down range as you can. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That is amazing for that kind of a battle and everybody firing that nobody got killed. Yeah. Oh, that is great. So that's this battlefield is now preserved. Yes. And, and that's a wonderful thing, I think. And in no small part due to the family. So Robert Hall Pearson, and he's going to be a big name um, after the Battle of Blackjack because he comes back and buys the property. He fights alongside John Brown at the Battle of Blackjack. And then he comes back, buys the land, moves there was a farmhouse on the original acreage and decides he doesn't want that farmhouse there. He's going to build a brand new one. So moves the, 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 the heart of the farmstead here uh, and builds a new house in 1890 overlooking the battlefield. And in fact, the front room of this house has one window that faces one Creek or one side and another window that faces the other Creek and the other side. And the family tells a story when Pearson was getting on in years, he would sit in the front room in his chair to where he could look out both windows and he could see both sides of the battle. And that property stayed in that family until the friends of Blackjack, who became the Blackjack Battlefield and Trust, um, bought the property. And that was in 2003. So that same family from the late 1800s all the way through 2003 owned that property and, and kept that battlefield from being developed. Thank goodness. Wow. Oh yes. That we have it today. That is fantastic. Yes. Now blackjack battlefield is in Douglas County, right? Yes. What's the history of Douglas County? Oh, Douglas County has a very colorful background. Douglas County is one of these places that is prominent in bleeding Kansas and Kansas history because Lawrence is in Douglas County and it was sort of the bastion 
of, of abolitionist thought. Uh, the New England Immigrant Aid Company becomes a society, but they, they, they send a whole bunch of folks to Kansas to, you know, like we talked about the, the border ruffians coming in and voting, right? The, the New England Immigrant Aid uh, Society, they're sending people to Kansas to help vote it as a free state. And a lot of them end up settling in places like Lawrence or certainly around there. And so you've got all of this that's happening in 1856 in Lawrence. Lawrence is going to be sacked again in 1863, Quantrell's Raiders. So Douglas County really is sort of this interesting place where a lot of this stuff plays out uh, in Douglas County because of Lawrence, because of the, the uh, abolitionist movement that really takes root in the county. So Robert Hall Pearson and his family owned the Blackjack Battlefield until 2003. Is that when your organization started? Yes. So yes and no. So the Friends of Blackjack had been an organization that was established to raise awareness for this battle prior to 2003. They existed for a few years before that. And then when, when the property was announced that it was, that it was going to be coming up for sale, the Friends of the Blackjack became an official entity with legal definition. They became an incorporated organization and bought the property. Okay. Then- In fact, for a number of years after Blackjack bought the property, the family still had family reunions out there. Um, so the family was still fairly close uh, with, with uh, the, the then president of the board and, and the board members. But you're, I mean, the, the organization, the Black Jack Battlefield organization, I know there was the Friends, yes. but your organization didn't start until they bought the property, right? That, that is correct, yes. yes. That is amazing to me that this battle took place in 1856, and yet it wasn't until 2003 that it really got what it deserved, which is recognition. That's true. And, you know, even today, I talk with folks very regularly, even in Baldwin, that are only, you know, maybe peripherally aware of Blackjack and its significant history. I mean, it's got a history as a farmstead. It's got a history with this battle. It's got a history with the uh, the Native uh, Americans that were here and the Santa Fe Trail that was here. Yeah, It's just a rich, rich, wonderful history. And so, most folks just know, oh, that's a place I can go and, and walk my dog on the nature trails. They don't realize the story behind it. How did John Brown get from Kansas back to Harper's Ferry? Because that's in Maryland, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So he develops in his time in Kansas, he, it solidifies in his mind that this is going to take bloodshed. And he starts to devise a plan of basically arming slaves. And this is something that most slave owners were fairly wary of anyway, uh, but he was going to arm the slaves. And so his original goal was to buy these pikes and arm slaves with, with pikes. And then when that sort of falls through, he decides he's going to attack Harper's Ferry. And so he's trying to build support for this. And so as he's working his way back east, He's trying to build a network of folks that will help either financially or lend their voice and their support. And in fact, at one point before Harper's Ferry, he has a sit down talk 
with Douglas. And Stephen Douglas says, listen, I don't think this is a good idea. I, I really cannot support this. It doesn't deter John Brown. He still goes ahead and they end up going into Harper's Ferry. And there was just a couple of, of soldiers on duty. So it was fairly easy to get control of Harper's Ferry. John Brown makes a big mistake, though. He lets the train go. And the train that they had that they had stopped, he decides to let it go to its next destination. And when they get there, they get out and they say, hey, some crazy person just took Harper's Ferry, took the arsenal. Yeah. And then the military gets involved. Did they have trains? Were they running so John Brown could hop on a train and go to Maryland? No, not directly. In fact, most of him working his way back was staying with folks that he knew, folks, you know, friends of friends, and he was he was on horse. So it, it wasn't, and that's why you have that, you know, between 1856 and 59. So he's working his way back east and trying to build support and build networks and develop this this plan. Wow, he was he was quite determined, wasn't he? <laughs> wow. Yes, yes. And, and most folks, they, they come down on one side of it or the other. They either really like John Brown or they really think he was just a, 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 a crazy uh, person that, that did bad things. And so that debate is still being had amongst people, amongst historians. I'm probably one of the few that is very middle of the road. I think he did what he had to do. He had a lot of passion. And that passion sometimes manifested itself in, you know, bad ways. Everybody has their own, uh, has their own interpretation. Yeah. So when John Brown attacked Harper's Ferry and, and they captured him, what happened to him? So John Brown was tried. It was a, uh, uh, was a, a civilian court, uh, is my understanding. And he was found guilty and he was hanged. There's actually a very famous painting of John Brown as he's being taken out of the house to go to the gallows, and he's bending down and he's, he's kissing a young black boy. That obviously is, is a bit of a farce. That didn't happen. He was actually taken from a jail cell. And while he was in jail, he received information. There were folks, there was a group that would have come and sprung him out of jail. And he said, no, no. I have resigned myself to this fate. He was hoping, and in fact, you could argue, was successful in becoming a martyr for the cause. It was the inspiration for the very famous John Brown's body. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. Yeah. He sparked this. And you could, you could argue that that really helped to ignite or fan the flames that became the American Civil War. So he's taken and he's hanged. And a lot of folks don't understand that John Brown wasn't from Kansas. A lot of folks don't realize he was not buried in Kansas either. Okay. So he was buried in near Harper's Ferry in Maryland or? Was it in New York, I think? Okay. Yeah, that makes sense because he came to Kansas from New York, right? Yeah, uh, North Elba. Okay. All right. So he's buried there and they probably have some kind of a, you know, some kind of a recognition that he's buried there. Yes, there is a monument erected there to him. Fantastic. Wow. John Brown was an amazing character. He he started out in New York. He came to Kansas. He had battles and he was recruiting people to the cause of anti-slavery, which I think is abolitionist, right? Mm -hmm. That's okay. Correct. He's recruiting people and then he goes all the way to Maryland 
to get arms at Harper's Ferry so that he can arm the blacks. Yeah. Wow. You can see in his writing and you can see in his over the course of his life, he changes. So when John Brown is a young boy, he witnesses a slave being beaten to death with a shovel. And he that made such an impression on him that for the rest of his life, he vowed to defend these folks against the against their oppressors, against, you know, these these white slave holding folks in the South. Um, And and not only was John Brown considered in his age a, a radical for that belief, but he was the radical of radicals because he also believed in more equality between men and women. So even in his own household, things that would have traditionally been a a woman's job, he didn't mind doing. He would have his son's help. And so, you know, he was very, very much a believer that, you know, when we talk about all men are created equal, and I men meaning the race of man, so men and women, and he took that to heart. Well, he was uh, way ahead of his time. He definitely was. Wow. In, in fact, you could argue he would probably fit in with some of the debates that we're having still today. Well, that's that's what I keep pondering over in my mind is how relevant all of this is to where we find ourselves. Yeah, it's it's, uh, it's kind of interesting. We, we've been having the same discussions for a very long time. And, and I, I wonder what John Brown would make of what's going on here. Uh, it would definitely be interesting. I think many of the same conclusions that he drew in the 1850s can still be drawn today. I think he would be very pleased that our country has moved to incorporate equality into our laws. I would agree with that statement completely. I think he would be very happy. And I think he would also probably uh, have a little smirk on his face to think that maybe he might have had something to do with that, you know, getting the ball rolling <laughs> yeah. in 1861 with the Civil War. Yeah, we, we lost yeah. 650,000 people in that war. Man, yeah, that's a lot of um, people. And, and every death was an American death. Yep, absolutely. Dr. Hart, thank you for the great information. It's time for our first break for a few minutes. All right, listeners, stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. Introducing a totally new experience. The Blackjack Battlefield and Nature Park, where you'll find state-of-the-art immersive environments, interactive exhibits, and dramatic films that will take you on an amazing journey to the beginnings of the American Civil War and the end of slavery in the United States. Discover a world of passions, skullduggery, and battles fought by abolitionist warriors in Kansas. The Blackjack Battlefield and Nature Park, their legacy is yours. Please join, volunteer, visit, and donate to them today. For more details, visit the website at blackjackbattlefield.org or email at info at blackjackbattlefield.org. Yeah. 
It's time for Preservation Oaks Book Shorts. Book Shorts is a segment of the program where we quickly introduce listeners to authors and books which satisfy your love of history and genealogy, help you with your own research, and finally help you improve the depth and wisdom of your unique family story. On this installment of Book Shorts, we're very pleased to be joined by author Joy Neal Kidney to provide listeners with an overview of her books. Joy's books fall into the category of nonfiction books that provide insights into ancestors' lives and the places they lived. I especially like history books that allow the reader to step back in time, which these books clearly do. These books can add depth to understanding and telling your own family history. Joy Neal Kidney is an Iowa author who grew up on an Iowa farm. With God's help, Joy is aging gratefully. Living with fibromyalgia for two dozen years has given her plenty of homebound days to write blog posts and books. Listeners, I want you to know that this isn't just any nonfiction teller of stories. Joy was recognized and presented with the 2021 Great American Storyteller Award. Quote, Honoring the woman who most beautifully tells the story of America to Americans, unquote. This award was given by Our American Stories Organization and WHO News Radio 1040. You can visit Joy's website at joynealkidney.com. Joy has three books, the first being Leora's Letters, the story of love and loss for an Iowa family during World War II. There were five brothers that went to World War II, only two came home. Leora's Letters, the story of love and loss for an Iowa family during World War II, tells the story of the five Wilson brothers who are featured on the Dallas County Freedom Rock at Minburn, Iowa. Leora was their mother, and it was Joy's grandmother. The second book is Leora's Dexter Stories, The Scarcity Years of the Great Depression. The undertow of the Great Depression becomes poignantly personal as we experience the travails of Leora and Clabe Wilson, a displaced Iowa farm family. Gritty determination fuels this family's journey of loss and hope, a reflection of what many American families endured during those challenging times. In this true story, the Wilsons slowly slide into unemployment and poverty. Leora must find ways to keep her dreams alive while making a haven for her flock of seven children in one rundown house after another. The third book, which Joy is currently working on, is called Leora's Early Years, Guthrie County Roots. It's the third book in the Leora Stories series, and it's scheduled to be released this year, sometime in the late summer. Okay, Joy, welcome to the program. Well, thank you for inviting me. Oh, you're very welcome. I'd like to say how awesome your books are. The cool thing about these books is they tell a story about the past that anybody researching family history and having ancestors who lived during the World War II years can immediately benefit from. These books can enhance their understanding of the times and the lives of their ancestors, and that information can really assist them in telling their own family stories and might actually lead them to explore new threads of research. Can you give listeners an overview of your books? Well, that World War II book, it had to be told because of the losses of the three brothers. But what it has done when people read it is they start telling me stories of their World War II relatives. You know, I just wanted to write a book. I didn't realize the connections they were going to make. 
The second one is called Leora's Dexter Stories, The Scarcity Years of the Great Depression. I'm just amazed at how many. I gave a talk last week and people told their Great Depression stories. I was amazed. I do research in what's out there. So many of the depression stories have to do with the Okies and the going to California, or they are farm families. My dad was a farm family during that time. I never heard him talk about being worried about what to eat. And my depression era story even talks about when they had possum for supper. And at first, my mother said, oh, don't tell them that. And I said, Mom, your family did what they had to do to survive. They had the seven children. The new book, The Early Years, actually goes into when Leora was born, 1890. I discovered that her grandparents were some of the very first settlers in Guthrie County, Iowa at the time. I was not an old state. I think we became a state in 1846. And these ancestors came into that section of Iowa as early as 1854. So the beginning of it sketches early Iowa, early Guthrie County, and just what it was like to grow up during those years. Eventually, I'll probably do the rest of them. The next one is actually going to be the research I did to find out what happened to those three brothers during World War II. Where can people get a copy of your book? What's the best? Well, they are self-published through Amazon on KDP. But if you would like an autographed copy, we have an indie bookstore here in Des Moines called Beaverdale Books. The phone number is 515-279-5400, and they will ship them. So that's a nice connection to be able to also benefit an indie bookstore. Joe, I'd like to thank you for your time today and for your great books, for your great stories. Listeners, pick up a copy of these excellent books. They have real-life, true information that can help you shape your family history. So thank you, Joy, for being a guest on Book Shorts. Thank you, Sean, for inviting me. Good luck with your new book coming out later this summer entitled Leora's Early Years, Guthrie County Roots. You come back anytime, okay? Okay, thank you. All right, bye-bye. And now, back to Preservation Oaks. Welcome back to Preservation Oaks. I'm your host, Sean Thomas Radcliffe. We're here today with Dr. Jonathan Hart, the Executive Director of the Blackjack Battlefield and Nature Park, located in Wellsville, Kansas. Let's pick up where we left off. Welcome back, Dr. Hart. Thanks for having me. Now, Jonathan, can you please provide the audience with an overview of the communities you serve there around the area, the variety of your membership, and the mission and objectives of your organization? Sure, absolutely. So, Number one, our our audience is anybody and everybody that will listen. I mean, we work very closely with Baldwin City to co-host events. We work with a number of entities in Douglas County to to sponsor events, Uh, everything from art and wine and informational out there at Blackjack all the way to battlefield reenactments uh, that we do to portray the Battle of Blackjack. So we really cover the 
the whole gamut. We want folks to be able to use this space. And I, I think John Brown would have wanted it that way too, to be able to use this space as a place to come, to come together and to, to relax and to enjoy and, and hopefully learn something too. Yeah, um, and as far as the variety of our membership, we have members from the state of Kansas. We have members all across the United States. We even have a couple of international members. So it is open to anybody and everybody, anybody who has a passion for the, the natural environment, the, you know, the nature, the nature side that we have out there, the restored prairie, the battle of blackjack itself, uh, and the importance of that history and 19th century farming. I mean, we have to remember that this was an active farmstead from the 18, well, 1880s with the, the Pearson family all the way up until 2003. I mean, it was an active farm when, when we took over uh, ownership of the property. So that's when you think about just the development of farming over that period. Yeah. A lot changed. You know, from, yeah. Yeah. From, from using animals to plow to using tractors. It's, it's, it's a lot of change just in that aspect. Absolutely. Now this battlefield, when the battle was going on, a lot of musket balls were being exchanged. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they had the cartridges like they had in the civil war. Or whether they had yeah, muskets. Yeah, a little early for cartridges. Yeah. Okay, so has that battlefield, or was it metal detected and all of those things dug up? So when Blackjack first took over ownership of the property, we made a commitment to restoring the house, which was remarkably in original condition. They had added a, a wraparound porch that we, we took off. But all the original windows from 1890, all of that still existed. Uh, under the facade, the original wood flooring was still there, and as part of that, we had uh, we had some groups from a uh, few universities that came in and actually did some metal detecting, did some uh, archaeological digs. Oh, good! They found a few things, bullets and things like that. Nothing definitively from that era because you know lead bullets didn't change much, and so the same bullet that you might have been shooting at blackjack would have been the same kind and style of bullet that you'd be shooting at the deer with. Right. Um, right. So we can't conclusively say that anything is related to the battle, but we, we certainly can get, can get some idea that it was in that time period. Well, how did you get involved in this? What's your background? So <laughs> I am a self admitted life, lifelong Kansan real, real Jayhawker from Kansas, I guess you'd say. And, uh, I, <laughs> I grew up here. I, I moved away. I was active duty. I was in the Air Force uh, for a little while. And then I came back. Uh, I went to university. I, uh, I have a PhD in early American history. And I've always found the Civil War bleeding Kansas fascinating. Uh, I have been a Civil War reenactor since I was 14 years old. Oh, wow. And so this, this just really spoke to me. And I joined the board back in 2014. Uh, the board at Blackjack. I was aware of the the uh, uh, the work that they had been doing. Was very interested. Showed my interest, and uh, they they offered me a, a spot on the board. And I've served on the board up until this last year. And this last year, we had a major capital campaign, a major uh, initiative to raise some funds to build an education center, uh, a parking lot, and restore the battlefield because it's now been overgrown with a lot of invasive trees. 
and the board unanimously elected to offer me the position as executive director. So I was very honored um, to, to be able to do that. And we are now wrapping up one major portion of our capital campaign. We raised about $1.8 million toward a $2 million capital campaign. Oh, that's fantastic. So we're very excited. Like, like we said, like you and I talked before, this is something that still resonates with people and people still uh, feel very connected to this because of the conversations that are being had today, learning this sort of long saga history of this site. People are very excited about it. And we are too. Yeah, you should be. It's fantastic, fantastic history. Hey, doctor, um, you mentioned that you have recently built an education center on the property. Is that right? We have raised funds. Actually, the construction will start next summer or the summer of, of 2023. Okay. Um, What's that going to so, be yes. like? Is that going to be like a classroom or how does that work? So we're really excited about this. So there was a, a barn, a barn that was built when the house was built. And it burned, uh, I think, sometime in the 1970s. The barn burned down. And we will be rebuilding this barn. And on the exterior, it will look like a, a 19th century barn, building as close as we can to what we know was there. But then on the inside, it will be completely modern. So there will be a, a lower level, because this was a, a ramp-style barn. So the, the backside of the barn, kind of like a berm home, the backside of the barn sticks out of the hillside. There's a ramp that comes up the front to the main level. So you actually have a lower level, and that will be for storage, a main level where we will have some small interpretive panels that talk about blackjack, that talk about the Pearson Farm and the environment and the Santa Fe Trail. And then most of that main area is going to be an open classroom. And that's going to be an area where students can come, where we have interactive screens that will come down with projectors so that we can engage the students so that they can take an active part in learning about all of these histories, not just an education space, but also a meeting space. The Daughters of the American Revolution can use it for their meetings. We can have folks like photographers. I know one of the things that's on that property are maple trees, very beautiful here this time of year in the fall. And they'll be able to come out and take photographs and use that inside space if they need some studio space. And so this is really going to be sort of a, a really a community space, but also an education space. And then there's going to be a loft area, which the barn would have originally had. And that will be office space uh, for our board, for um, our, the executive director and a marketing director and the folks that we that we have in place here. That is one of the most exciting things I have heard in a long time. That's going to be fantastic. Oh, we're, we're very excited about it too. Wow. So besides that, is there anything else coming up on the horizon? Where's your organization headed next? We have basically three major tenants of our capital campaign. That first one being the building of a visitor center. The second one, and kind of in conjunction with that, having a parking lot. Right now, we basically have a grass area that folks can park in. And while that works really great when it's dry in the summer, in, in the winter or when it's raining, it can become very difficult for folks to park. We don't want anybody to get stuck out there. If we have reenactments out there, we're very dependent on the weather. And so having a parking lot, that'll be important for us. 
and then restoring the battlefield. So this is something that has come up. We do have students out there on the property, approximately two to 3,000 students a year uh, out there on the property. And the problem is it's become so overgrown with, with trees, primarily cedar trees and some cottonwood trees along the banks of the creek beds, that's very difficult to get a sense of the size and the scope. Uh, and when I say size, I don't mean as in it is large. I mean, these guys were literally a few hundred yards in some places uh, away from each other. And where the creek comes together, they may have been 20 or 30 yards right. away from one another. So you, I mean, it's, it's a, it's not, when we think of a battlefield, you know, you think of Gettysburg, you think of these big expansive tracks of land and this isn't this is a very small very small place close quarters battle yes very much wow now you mentioned that you've been a civil war reenactor for many years and yes. i can only imagine that you're you're doing reenactments out there on the property yes so we always have one uh, around the anniversary date so june 2nd doesn't always fall on a weekend we realize that that's not convenient for some folks. Uh, but June 2nd, every year, we do a lantern tour for those that are brave enough to come out very early in the morning. We meet at five o'clock, between 4.30 and five o'clock, and we do a lantern tour of Blackjack. And, and wow. sometimes we even have John Brown and Henry Clay Pate show up to give their interpretations uh, of that battle. And then normally either the Saturday before or the Saturday after is a reenactment and that's during the day. So we're, we're not being as true, but we're, we're in spirit trying to be true. Uh, so we, we walk through the events of the battle during the day and have folks come out. We have food trucks. We, we normally have civil war reenactors also there. We um, in the past, we've had a blacksmith's forge, um, you know, so we're we're just we're celebrating kind of all things uh, mid nineteenth century. That sounds like so much fun! What a day! What a week! Yes. That is amazing. Yes. I've always wondered. So the Civil War reenactors they wear traditional Civil War uniforms or farming attire. They have to buy or rent. I don't know if that's possible, but they have to get a gun of some kind. And they have to know how to load it so that nobody gets hurt, but smoke comes out the barrel, right? Right. Uh, how much does all of that cost to get into a Civil War <laughs> reenactment kind of mode? So you can spend $3,000 plus very, very quickly. And you can spend that on quality stuff, but you can also spend it on stuff that's not very good. And so I always encourage folks that are interested in the Civil War getting into reenacting to find a local unit. They're going to have resources. They're going to be able to point you in the right direction to make sure that when you're buying your leather belt, for example, that it's real quality leather. It's not bonded leather. And part of it is being historically accurate. And part of it is you are going to be out using this limited. I mean, they use it every day. You're going to be out using this. And you want it to last. You want it to hold up. And are you going to spend uh, $100 on a belt that's going to last you a few years or $100 on a belt that may last you the next 20? <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. but you can spend, uh, I mean, the sky's the limit when it comes to reenacting. I had been collecting pieces as people were getting out of the hobby. 
I had been collecting pieces over the years. And when I finally, I didn't, I don't say I have completely gotten out of Civil War enacting, but I have pulled away a great deal, uh, having young kids in a family, not always conducive to being gone every weekend uh, mm-hmm. at a reenactment. Yeah. I had been collecting, I had approximately 50 complete uniforms. And if this gives you any idea, I sold those, most of them, to somebody who, who was, was going to take them and use them, give them new homes. And the money I received from that purchased our first motorhome. <laughs> wow, that is something else. <laughs> so you can wrap up a lot of money in it. But most units, and I was that guy for my unit, uh, most units have somebody or the unit itself has loaner gear. And so the reason I maintained those uniforms was if somebody said, hey, I'm really interested in reenacting, we have gear and rifles to give them, to get them started. And then as they're able to purchase things, they can start uh, purchasing that on their own. And then we'll take that back and we'll have it to give somebody else to use. So don't let money hold you back from reenacting. Yeah, I just wanted our listeners to hear this because it does take some commitment and you have to be out there in the in the mock battles to enjoy yourself. Yes, and and there is a moment, and every reenactor has a different moment and a different time, but there is a moment, uh, and it happened early on when I was reenacting, where you're, you're standing there and you're seeing the folks across the battlefield, you're, you're smelling the gunpowder in the air, there's kind of you know, it's, it's, you can't, your, your, your view is obstructed, right? You can't see very well. You're looking up and down the lines. And for a few brief seconds, you're like, this is it. This is what the civil war was like. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you don't have that immediate threat of, of, of dying, which is, you know, thank goodness for that. But at the same time, you really get an idea, you know, when you're sitting down and you're eating and you're not even quite sure what it is you're eating and you're having, you're talking around a campfire at night, you're thinking, Wow, this really is what these folks would have gone through every single day. Yeah. So you're not just out there in a mock battle during the day. You also, these guys spend the night. Most folks do. And and over the years, a lot of the progressive units or the units that, you know, you might see somebody out in polyester pants, you know, back in the 80s, that is waning. And so there's a lot more very authentic units. I'm, I'm sorry, progressive units now, the mainstream units, you know, from, from before. But there's a lot of very progressive units that are very authentic. You hear campaigners a lot more now than you than you did back when I was reenacting. And I think it's great because these are guys that will literally throw whatever they can on their back. They will carry it the entire weekend. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they'll set up a camp and they'll post pickets. <laughs> Amazing. Dr. Hart, can you tell us a couple of funny or interesting stories from your organization's history? Yeah. So I think probably one of the most interesting stories that we had, uh, I was with my reenactment group and back when we were a little more active and I was more active in it, we used to go out there because blackjack was there and it, it was obviously a, a good place to camp. We would go out a couple times a year and just do, do some, do some camping, do some drilling. We, we had our spring muster out there for several years. And I remember one year, it was mid April. We were out there and we were camping and a storm came in from, from nowhere. And it was a really bad storm. It actually dropped a couple of trees in the front yard. And 
our wall tents. So some of the officers and I, our wall tents were blowing and they were, you know, we were worried they were going to come down. So we laid them down and then it started raining. So a lot of us opted to go into the house and, and sleep in the house. And it was a lot of thunder, a lot of lightning. And we were laying in the front room, all of us kind of around the front room and directly across the way is the stairway staircase that goes straight up to the second floor of the home. And at the top of that stairway is a window. And so every time the lightning would flash and the thunder would go, you know, would go, you could see that window. In fact, you could see everything. It, it was like daylight. And there was a moment when the lightning flashed and there was a shadow at the top of the stairs. Oh, cool. And we're all looking around. And you can see when the lightning is flashing and we're all looking at the ra- around the room, looking at each other. And, you know, somebody's counting uh, heads to see. And so we all decided that's that's enough of that. We're we're going to sleep outside. We'll we'll <laughs> we'll brave the weather and the storm. And so several of us left. A few folks stayed. Uh, I have no idea if that was a real experience, if it was a ghost, if it was just somebody having us on. Nobody admitted it to to uh, the group to doing it. Uh, and we were all pretty shaken up about that. Not that it was a scary thing, but uh you know, we always kind of wondered, was well, that just Pearson looking after the, the the property? He actually died in that home. He died in that front room. So, you know, maybe, I don't know. You never know. <laughs> that is pretty yeah. cool. That is pretty cool. Have you had any paranormal type people in there? Uh, we have. In, in fact, this year we are featured on Free State Horror Stories, which is a, a YouTube channel. And they did a whole thing on blackjack. So that was kind of an interesting thing. I, I never thought about it from that angle. They brought in a medium to walk through the home. And it was just kind of a neat thing. Wow. And that's on YouTube? Free State Horror Stories? Free State Horror Stories. Wow, yeah. I'll have yeah, to look the, that up. That season will be coming up. That is pretty cool. Thank you. As we continue, I need to provide listeners with the contact information for the Blackjack Battlefield and Nature Park. Listeners, you can find them on the web at www.blackjackbattlefield.org. You can visit them at 163 East 2000 Road, Wellsville, Kansas 66092. Their mailing address is P.O. Box 44, Baldwin City, Kansas 66006. You can email them at info at blackjackbattlefield.org. You can phone at 785-380-9156, and you can find them on Facebook, Blackjack Battlefield and Nature Park. Is that all right, Dr. Hart? Yes. Fantastic. Dr. Hart, on the Blackjack Battlefield, what kinds of facilities do you have and what kinds of exhibits are on display? So right now we have a mobile exhibit in the front room of the home that talks about the battlefield, the Pearson farm, the environment and the Santa Fe trail. And uh, we have some outdoor restroom facilities. We're hoping to change that with the building of our visitor education center. But we, uh, we, we have a 40 acres out there and a good chunk of that is nature trails. So we have some woodland trails. We have some restored prairie. We actually have some virgin prairie out there. It's a small patch, but that is a piece of prairie that has existed basically in in perpetuity, right? It's never been cultivated. And so those root structures are quite thick. (laughs) 40 acres is a nice size. Yeah. 40 acres, no mule though. 
Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and do you farm any of that today? Uh, so we have some small areas that we have outlined for a summer and winter garden as part of our education program for the for the kids to be able to learn this sort of ground to table life cycle of food. Right. It, it amazes me that there are so many kids that they when you ask them, hey, where do you get your your groceries uh, from the store? Well, yeah, but where do they come from? The store. <laughs> and so understanding that these these folks ate what they grew and if they didn't grow it, they probably didn't eat. Right. Um, you know, yeah. so you had to be very involved in your garden. So we do have some small patches. We don't do anything on a on a commercial scale. Um, we've got some wonderful folks that are helping us take care of that. In fact, we've planted a cover crop this year to get our garden beds ready for next year. So we planted oats and field peas. Cool, very cool. Do you have anything going on at Halloween? Um, well, we will be doing the Free State Horror Story screening. So we're going to be screening some of those early episodes for for Halloween coming up. Actually, it's here this evening. Um, cool. But other than that, we, we don't have anything else, uh, anything else planned. Nothing major, at least for the, for the rest of the year. Cool. You are a very busy man. <laughs> yes, yes. But I wouldn't have it any other way. In Douglas County, do you have any of your collections exhibited? anywhere else in the county? So some of the few things that were found uh, on Blackjack Battlefield that were that were relevant uh, are at the Watkins Museum. Uh, that's in Lawrence. So what kind of funding model supports the organization? And what are your funding goals this year? I, obviously, it's the education center, right? Yes. And so our, our primary support comes from memberships. We have a membership organization with, with Blackjack. And we also receive some grants and we receive some foundation and individual donors. Uh, and we encourage all of that. Blackjack has got such a unique story that is, has so many different veins that it's nearly impossible to find something that somebody's not interested in, right? Which is to say um, there is something for everyone. And so we encourage people to participate, even if it's not monetarily, you know, it takes a ton of volunteer hours. Uh, out there at the site just just to mow, uh, just to make sure that the trails are maintained. So we encourage people to come out and help and give in any way they can. It's there for them to use, and we hope that they will want to give back and help take care of it too. So you do have a, an annual reenactment. Yes. And mm -hmm. then when you get your education center built, obviously you'll have things going on there. You, you mentioned the Daughters of the American Revolution being there. Mm -hmm. Yes. So we have a little bit of a connection to the Daughters of the American Revolution because of the family that was there, the, the Pearson family and their descendants uh, and their and their forebearers. Right. So they could trace their lineage back. So the Daughters of the American Revolution uh, have been out the site. We have a very strong connection to the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts. Boy Scouts have a campery, a large campery every third year. And it generally brings between two and 400 scouts out to the property, which is great. Wow. Uh, and we encourage folks to come out. Uh, one of the springs that's on our site actually has a stone reservoir that was built. One of the first Boy Scout troops in Douglas County uh, in the 19, you know, mid, late 1920s, I believe, when the Boy Scouts got started. They started camping out there and they built this little reservoir so they could fill up their canteens. Oh, very cool. Are you doing anything on July 4th out there? 
So uh, yeah, from from year to year, it changes a little bit. July fourth, we we try to have a little bit of a celebration. We usually go in with uh, with Baldwin City to try to do something uh, for the for the community. June second, obviously, is our is our reenactment. In August, we participate with um, Civil War on the border, Civil War on the Western border, and so we try to have some some things uh, to help help highlight and feature uh, the Civil War in Kansas. Oh, very cool. I know in the military they're always selling challenge coins, uh, and I'm not exactly sure what they are, but I see them on eBay all the time. Are you selling any kind of coins or any kind of mementos for the battle? So we do have um, limited production of, of uh, shirts and things that we have uh, out at the home that we offer to folks when we have events, but uh, we don't offer those online. You, you have to show up and, uh, and come in and get them. We also sell with our memberships syrup. So one of the things that Robert Hall Pearson did when he started farming this, this property is he planted a row of silver maples. Well, a couple of rows of silver maples the, with the intent of producing not maple syrup at the time. He was actually one of the first producers in Kansas and certainly the first in Douglas County to produce sugar. So it was maple sugar. He was actually rendering it down all the way to, to sugar crystals. And he chose silver maples because he thought that they would survive the harsh summers better. And as it turns out, they don't produce as much sap, which is what becomes the, the sugar or right. the syrup. So he ordered 200 sugar maples to be brought in by rail into Baldwin. And he actually passed away as those trees were en route. And so when they arrived in Baldwin, uh, the family took some. They didn't have any need for all of them. Um, they didn't have the same passion for it uh, as, as Robert had. And so a lot of those trees ended up giving, being given out to community members. And that is a connection that has survived even to this day. There are a lot of maple trees in Baldwin. They have an annual maple leaf festival, which you know brings tens of thousands of people to town for, for weekend. And that all comes from the maple trees that Robert Hall Pearson, through, well, through his death, ended up donating to the community. That is amazing. That is pretty cool. You mentioned your memberships. Are there membership levels and how much is a membership? We have a, an individual membership that starts at $35. At, four, at a $40 contribution, you get a bottle of maple syrup. So kind of getting back, making that connection. We tapped the trees this year, the first time in oh, 40 or 50 years that those trees have been tapped. And we rendered blackjack maple syrup. So we offer that with a membership of $40. Uh, we have a contributing member, which is $50, supporting at $100, sustaining at $250, and so on and so forth. So there's a number of different levels that folks can become a member, and that comes with different uh, different things. Uh, the, the higher the level, the more of a discount you will get on tickets to Blackjack events. We have a few exclusive events, including a, an awards a banquet that we do uh, at the end of the year uh, that our memberships uh, that our membership is allowed to come to. Uh, we have the annual meeting, uh, which happens every February. It's the end of our, our fiscal year that, of course, members can come to. And uh, there's just there's a number of things. And we're always building. Right. So we encourage folks to partner with us and work with us to create these opportunities for our membership. 
the events that you do, are you doing those virtually? There are some events that we do offer virtually. So the donor awards is something that we offer virtually. The annual meeting is something that we have available through Zoom uh, for folks that want to uh, that want to participate. Um, we have in the past we've done uh, some online uh, virtual auctions. We've had some uh, art events out at Blackjack, and then had that art also available for folks to view online and a giveaway for members for that artwork. Very cool. Thank you for that. How did COVID pandemic or how has the COVID pandemic affected your organization? Oh, as far as our ability to, to do events and to bring people together, it's probably like every other organization and group out there. We have really struggled bringing folks out and, and continue to struggle really in doing the responsible you know, helping folks feel comfortable and also helping to keep folks socially distanced through COVID. But I will tell you that unlike a lot of other organizations, because we're a 40 acre nature park, this really was a great place. And we actually heard a lot of folks that had come out and used Blackjack for the first time because of COVID. They didn't feel comfortable going to the store or the museum or, you know, all these other places they would come out to Blackjack where they could socially distance, they could enjoy nature, and they could find some of the peace and, and the relief from this sort of chaotic world that, that we've had over the last couple of years. No kidding. And did you have to do the disinfectant in the Pearson house and all of those things? Yes. So for the folks that wanted to come into the house, yes, we, we took the extra precautions. Uh, some of the groups that came in, uh, with mask wearing and sanitizing surfaces and uh, having everyone uh, sanitize their hands, that kind of thing. Okay, fantastic. Um, doctor, it's time for us to take a short break. Listeners, stay tuned. We'll be right back. the Blackjack Battlefield and Nature Park. Their mission is to provide for the preservation of the battlefield associated with the Battle of Blackjack, which occurred on June 2, 1856. The 40-acre Nature Park, native tall grass prairie, and the Pearson Farmhouse, and to utilize them to educate the public about the local and national significance of each. Please join, volunteer, visit, and donate to them today. For more details, visit the website at blackjackbattlefield.org or email at info at blackjackbattlefield.org. Thank you for listening to Preservation Oaks. If you're a member of a museum, historical or genealogical society that has not yet been featured as a guest on our program, please let them know to contact preservationoaks at gmail.com. We welcome everyone. Thank you. When so much of history is about the big moments, it's the details stored and preserved in cultural, genealogical, historical societies and museums throughout the United States that makes the stories about the people and events of those times truly unique and enjoyable. With each episode of Preservation Oaks, you have an adventure where history comes to life. You can take pleasure in knowing more about these trusted American organizations, like how they're funded, how volunteers can help, their essential value to your community, and the services they give back. 
No detail is overlooked at Preservation Oaks. Visit preservationoaks.podbean.com today, where great adventures are presented in every episode. Captain, our computer is picking up a strange signal. Here, sir, you better take a look at it. You're listening to MicroStream Radio and Preservation Oaks. The world's only program communicating the value of museums, historical and genealogical societies across the USA. The most interesting show on the planet. This is Tom Spindler from the Norman Borlaug Heritage Foundation, and I love listening to Sean Thomas Radcliffe on MicroStream Radio. This is Debbie Burgess, president of the Onega Historical Society, and I listen to Sean Thomas Radcliffe and Preservation Oaks on MicroStream Radio. This is Dave Hurlbrink, president of the National Agriculture Center and Hall of Fame in Bonner Springs, Kansas, and I love listening to Sean Thomas Radcliffe on MicroStream Radio. When I was new, I was solid as a rock and ready for work. I could carry 1,700 pounds. My frame was made of hickory, poplar, and my tongue from an ash tree. I was sold to Bill and Mary. They loaded me up almost every week with all manner of things to haul. Spot and Brownie were hitched up to me and we all went along to town. I also hauled things the family needed from town back to the farm. When Mary died suddenly, they put her in me for the gentle final ride to the cemetery. Bill kept using me all the time, through all kinds of weather, I took a beating over those years. Then, for a long time, I stood behind the barn, alongside the thresher, unmoving and slowly rusting. I watched machines go by, hauling more than I can. Finally, I was loaded on the back of a flatbed truck, and they took me to a workshop. There, I was lovingly refurbished. They made sure all my parts were put back like new, and my wheels turned again. I was parked inside a museum. Electric lights show me off, and every day, people talk about how I'm made, how beautiful my wood is, and sometimes, occasionally, someone mentions Mary and Bill. I feel so proud that I can help others understand the past, which I guess I'm now a part of. Rather than throwing it out, please donate historical records and objects to your local historical society, today. 9 out of 10 curators agree, Preservation Oaks is the best podcast on the internet. And now, back to Preservation Oaks. Preservation Oaks. We're here today with Dr. Jonathan Hart from the Blackjack Battlefield and Nature Park located nearby Wellsville, Kansas. We've learned so much great information. What a lot of history you're preserving, doctor. That's fantastic. Thank you for the information you provided to our audience about your organization and welcome back. Thank you. On the Blackjack Battlefield, do you have any monuments or or other things that you that your organization cares for? Yeah, so um, one of the things that we have that has sort of become like a monument, especially with us tapping the maple trees, we have a, a large brick renderer, a maple syrup renderer that was that was uh, uh, built in, there on the property. And so we kind of care for that. 
we also have our acknowledgement from the National Park Service. So we actually hold the highest level uh, of, of status that you can have for a privately owned entity uh, through the National Park Service. So we are a uh, national historic landmark. So that's the highest level, the highest um, a level you can you can be as a privately held uh, uh, piece of property. Oh, that's so great. And we have a monument for that. We have uh, monuments to uh, many of our great donors and folks that have helped us so much in the past. Uh, I am not the first and I will not be the last. Um, there are many, many wonderful and passionate folks that help to make this a reality to preserve this battlefield and the house and the park for future generations and and share that story actively. Well, that's fantastic. What kinds of volunteer opportunities does the organization have for members and the public? So we have a park cleanup day. It coincides with the National Park Service's uh, uh, battlefield cleanup day. Uh, every year, it's generally in April. And we invite folks to come out. We have lunch that's provided, normally hot dogs and hamburgers, that sort of affair. And we clean the battlefield. We pick up limbs. We we pile them. There's uh cleaning up the uh, walkways and the trails, cleaning the house. I mean, it does get some cobwebs and things in it from time to time. Oh, yeah. um, so we, we just generally try to keep this, the place spruced up. We're always looking for volunteers for that. And we love to have volunteers partner with any of our events. So because we have such a unique history and we have all these wonderful uh, groups and organizations that we partner with, uh, having volunteers to come out and sometimes it's just as simple as watching a booth, you know, uh, providing some inform inform informative pamphlets. You know, we had a booth at uh, the Maple Leaf Festival this year, uh, and uh, we had some volunteers that helped us with that. We were in the parade. So there's there's a lot of opportunities. The sky's the limit. And all of the events that we do, we're always looking for, for volunteers. You know, when we have our reenactments, we have a lot of folks come in from all over, uh, in state and out of state, and we need a, a volunteer pool just to help sort of park cars and, and direct traffic. We oh, yeah. have volunteers that help coordinate the music. We have volunteers that come out and play the music. Uh, so that is very cool. Do you have tour guides? We do, yes, and uh, we have some some folks that have taken it upon themselves to do the tours and to help other volunteers that want to do tours to learn the history. We've put together some informative booklets that help folks to learn the history so they know they know what to say and, and when and where to say it. Oh, that's great. Now, I forgot to ask this earlier, but the Pearson House, is it furnished? It is not. So, and I know we talked a little bit about monuments earlier, and I guess I would argue that the Pearson House itself acts as an artifact or a monument in, in, in its own right. Um, so it's not furnished. It has been restored, uh, but we keep it as a, an empty artifact. But that also allows us to do some interesting things on the inside. Uh, this year we had we we tapped our, our maple trees. We had our maple syrup. We had a pancake breakfast, and we had tables set up inside so that folks could actually be in the house looking at the historic structure of the home, and you know, hey, enjoy some pancakes too. That is nice. It is very nice. So 
you've got Douglas County. You're in Douglas County. Mm -hmm. And I think you're very close to Franklin County. Now, those counties probably have historical societies and maybe museums and maybe genealogical societies. Do you interface with any of those societies? So, yes. Um, and to a larger extent, many of these societies and organizations belong to Freedom's Frontier National Heritage Area, and they have a number of areas that span Kansas and into Missouri, you know, as pre-Civil War, Civil War kind of tells the story of the enduring struggle for freedom. And we're all a big community. So e even the folks that aren't a part of that organization, we're all a very large community. We go and give talks to other groups and organizations. They come and give talks at our uh, at our location. And so we, we've got a great working relationship with a lot of folks and we're always looking to make new contacts and uh, get new ideas. That's great. I read online that you had won a partnership award from Baldwin City. Yeah. So this has probably been a, sort of a banner year for Blackjack interacting with Baldwin, working with Baldwin City to pull off uh, various events and organize organize things. Uh, you know, we, we started a series this year, which we, we will keep up in years to come with the library where we'll show a movie. We have a big 20 foot inflatable screen and we call that Movies on the Prairie where we'll bring, we have folks out. It's free. It doesn't cost anything to come out. We have some light refreshments uh, available for folks. It's a, it's a little bit of a charge for that, but they get to come out and watch, watch some movies. Oh, that's and really cool. uh, we partner with the Rec Commission and we've partnered with the Lumberyard Arts Center. And so we've built a lot of really great connections here in Baldwin and, and uh, some great things that we can carry forward in the future. When do movies start? Is that something like when spring comes, then we start showing movies? So this year we did it in the spring. And what we discovered this year is uh, it doesn't get dark early enough. <laughs> and you know, on, on a school night, and somebody who has children in school, I can sympathize with this. On a school night, if you're showing a movie, and we, we try to we try to have mostly family-friendly movies. There are few that we will designate as adult films because of the nature of the content. So if we're talking about something about the Civil War or something, and there's some graphic things in the film or in the documentary, we may let folks know, hey, this may not be appropriate for, for your kids. But most of our most of our films tend to be family oriented. And when you can't start a film until eight or nine o'clock, yeah. <laughs> that, that's a pretty late night uh, for uh, for for a family. So yeah. uh, what we're going to do in the future is probably move those to the fall when it's cool. It's still warm enough, but it's cool outside and the sun sets a little earlier. So we, we discovered that this year, but we're still going to do the movie series. Wow, cool. When did you say the visitor education center is going to be complete? So that's going to be started in uh, mid-summer. They said uh, our contractors are, are confident that they can have the building up uh, within about four months. Wow. Wow. Cool. So that's next so, year, right? Yeah. So, so by the end of next year or, or, you know, probably around this time next year, that whole place is going to be transformed. Yeah, that's very cool. You can have your movies in there. Yeah. Well, yeah. And then we won't be weather dependent and we can hopefully keep it a little darker. Yeah. So what kinds of things are available to do on your organization's website at blackjackbattlefield.org? So we have a number of, of, of articles and information about 
all the different veins of stories that we have about Blackjack. We have a page on our website where we'll occasionally post interesting updates or things that we are working on or discovered on the site or connections between uh, organizations or, or community or sometimes just family members. And we can, we'll post that information there. You can obviously join, become a member on our website, on our, on our main page. We, we kind of use between our, our website and our Facebook page, we really use that to reach out, certainly out a lot further than we could otherwise. Yeah, it's very cool. It's a nice website. Listeners, I'd like to give you the contact details for the Blackjack Battlefield and Nature Park once again. You can find them, as I mentioned, on the interwebs at blackjackbattlefield.org. You can visit them at 163 East 2000 Road, Wellsville, Kansas 66092. Their mailing address is P.O. Box 44, Baldwin City, Kansas 66006. You can email them at info at blackjackbattlefield.org. You can phone them at 785 380 9156 and they're on Facebook at the Blackjack Battlefield and Nature Park. Doctor, what's the easiest method for members of the public to donate to the organization? The easiest is probably through our website. Uh, we have a, a PayPal link. We also have a QR code that you can scan with your phone and it'll take you directly to PayPal. You don't have to be a member of PayPal. You can actually check out as a guest using your uh, credit or debit card to purchase a membership. This time of year, we're always encouraging folks to give their, their family members and loved ones uh, a membership. Had a lady uh, just the other day that contacted us. Her, her grandson was really into history and civil war and sort of pre-civil war. And she got her grandson a membership. And he was he was very thrilled about that. Got it for him for his birthday. Oh. And uh, he was really excited. He was emailing us saying, you know, hey, when can I come out and you know, what 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 events can I come to? And uh, so this is. I think he was eight. I think he had just turned eight. So, and, and he was, he was all in. So we were, we were kind of excited about that, but a uh, website is probably the easiest, but we still get folks that uh, that'll send us a check and that's, that's fine too. Fantastic. Thank you. Now I understand your organization and the battlefield experienced some vandalism this year. I was reading that on your Facebook page. Have you recovered from that? What steps have you put in place to deter that in the future? Yeah. So um, unfortunately, when your organization becomes better known, it can tend to encourage encourage folks to do bad things and negative things, too. And we did. Um, we had some uh, flagpoles that were taken on the property. We had some some damage uh, to the house itself. And we have taken some steps. It's a good area. But when you're out in the middle of nowhere and you've got trees all around you, it can be easy for folks that don't have the best intentions to do bad things. Mm. And so what we have done to try to address that, we put out a, uh, an ask on Facebook to get some trail cams. Uh, and we had some folks donate to that. We're very, very thankful for. We were able to get some trail cams, install them so that we know when people are coming out to the site. And, uh, you know, if anything happens in the future, hopefully we'll We'll capture that. Well, I guess the ideal thing would be discourage it, but if it does happen, hopefully we can we can find those folks and and you know put an end to that. I bet that really makes the uh, volunteers and members quite angry. It, it does, it does, and in fact, before we had the trail cam set up, we we had folks 
that volunteered. I mean, there, there are folks that go out there every morning. It's part of their habit, take their dogs and go for a walk or, or, uh, you know, some of our members go out and, uh, just do hiking or, you know, that kind of thing through the park. And we had a group of them. They actually got together to create a schedule so that they could cover portions of the morning and the day to, to make sure that our, our site was remaining safe. God bless them. Now we've talked about a lot of different things. And I want to make sure you have an opportunity to focus the public, the volunteers, the members on what your number one priorities are. Can you tell the audience about any current initiatives or needs of the organization that you want the people of your area to know about and support? Yeah, I, I think, you know, we're, we're so close to our goal, our two, our $2 million goal and those initiatives that we have set out. And so I encourage people to, you know, thoughtfully consider uh, a donation. And it doesn't have to be monetary. You know, some of our best contributions come as in-kind donations. Um, So local community leaders lending their voice or local contractors lending some time and saying, you know, look, I'll come out and I'll help you with this piece of your project and I won't charge you for that. Uh, or I'll charge you a reduced rate. And so, you know, it, it doesn't have to be monetary, but that is our, our highest priority right now is making sure that we get the Visitor Education Center, the parking lot, and the battlefield restored so that we can, next starting next year and beyond, have be able to show folks blackjack and be able to connect with them in a way that will, that will help them be able to understand that part of history and also help us to continue to tell, right? because uh, they will tell other folks. Yep, that's fantastic. You mentioned giving and giving to those specific initiatives. Is there a separate fund? If I'm donating, do I specify where the money goes or do I just donate and you guys take care of it? So you can do both. And what I encourage folks to do, if you have something that that you feel very passionately about, and, and I know, like, like you said, we've talked about a number of different things, but if you have something that you're passionate about, whether it's the history, maybe the 19th century agriculture, an education program, something like that, we encourage folks to reach out to us. I always love talking to folks and you know helping them find the best avenue for their, their gift, whatever that gift may be. And uh, certainly if they don't have any reservations, you can give it to the the general fund, which can go to operating in any one of these number of things, or you can specifically designate it. I want it to go to the capital campaign, or you really want to be specific. You can say, I want it to go to the capital campaign and I want it to be for the visitor center. I want it to be for the battlefield restoration. So we can accommodate any of those requests. Okay. Thank you very much for that. I know you mentioned working with school children. I think you mentioned, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you have about 4,000 school children go through per year. Yeah, it's somewhere between two and 3,000 students, which is, which is still significant. Okay. What are your thoughts about how best to keep history and the community support flourishing for that current generation, the K through 12? I think the most important thing, and I remember when I was a kid and if, if you can believe this, Sean, uh, I was not a big fan of history. I, I, it didn't connect the way it connects with me now. And history, when I was a kid, the way it was taught was a memorization game. It was yeah. this day, this person, this thing. And, and what I found was, as I became an adult, 
that telling the story, connecting it, you know, in a real way to someone is a way to really have them not only remember it, but also being able to relate to it and engage with it. And so I think the first and foremost thing we have to do for this generation is tell the stories and connect those stories to them because they're relevant. I mean, Blackjack is certainly relevant today. A number of of these stories as we tell uh, over the years are relevant. If, if for no other reason, then we need to know where we've been so we can know where we're going. And so I think telling the story is very important, but also being able to connect it. So imagine telling the story of Blackjack and seeing the battlefield restored in a way that John Brown would recognize it. Yeah, that's uh, very cool. So that they can see essentially the same battlefield that John Brown saw. I agree with you. I really disliked history when I was in school, only because every test was all about the dates, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. th- that just drove me crazy. So why is the organization important to the community? Well, I think as far as the battlefield goes, I mean, it's it's the first bloodshed over the issue of slavery, the first battle, even prior to, you know, the, the firing on Fort Sumter. I think that's in and of itself worth remembering. But I also think that it, it's an it's an important community uh, resource. Uh, you have the farm, you have Pearson and his history to this area and his connection to the surrounding communities. You have the environment, the environmental impact. I mean, where can you go? This is kind of a sad thing, but uh, where can you go in Kansas now where you can see restored prairie? I mean, there's only a few places because everything else has been so heavily modified or, or, you know, whether it's through agriculture or cattle or whatever it happens to be, just invasive species. So uh, I think it's connection to the Santa Fe Trail, the, the natural stopping point, the natural springs that are on the property. I think these are all really important reasons to keep this around and to continue to tell these really important, powerful stories. Yeah, very well said. Thank you. Doctor, what's the best way for people to connect with someone in the organization? You have a mailing address and, a, and an email and a website and so on and a phone number. What's the best way for people to do that? Really, the, the best way is to call us or reach out to us on, on Facebook. Uh, that will get you the fastest response. Uh, I would say that we offer a number of those uh, as options because we realize that folks have different abilities and different capabilities. And so one may speak to a person more than another. So if if you want to send us a letter, I would be happy to to read it. When I was a kid, I enjoyed going out to the mailbox and anymore. Uh, there's not much in there. So I don't mind getting a letter, but uh, if you if you need a response, or would like to engage in a conversation quickly, giving us a call, you're going to reach somebody and sending us a Facebook message. Somebody's going to respond to you very quickly. Okay. Thank you. Is there any other information or message you'd like the community or members to know about? Yeah. uh, I think Blackjack Battlefield and Nature Park, we are here for you. We exist because of your generosity and because of your interest and your willingness to tell our story. And we want to encourage folks to make Blackjack their own. So if there's something that you want to do, if there's something, some activity or some event that you want to see at Blackjack, 
you know, whatever you whatever you want to do, we're here to help facilitate that. I mean, within reason. I don't think there's going to be a John Brown water park at Blackjack anytime soon, but we want to encourage folks to use the site, to come to the site, to learn more about the site, and to help us make it better because uh, it really is for for the public. That's well said. Thank you. Doctor, reflecting just a bit, how do you think your members, volunteers, and the community view you and the organization in terms of benefits and value? I think they, they value the history, they value the stories, and I think they benefit from those. It's hard to know where you're going until you know where you've been. And so being able to go out and experience Blackjack, to experience that, that battle, I think it helps put things in perspective for folks having the the memberships and having a diverse uh, number of events you know we're not just centered on the farm we're not just centered on the battlefield we want to draw in the community and we want this to be a community space that is used and so i think that provides value all right thank you i want to thank you dr hart for spending the time with us today I'd really love to visit personally. I'd love to visit the area someday. It's truly inspiring to learn about this important event in our country's history and to know that it's being preserved as a national landmark. That's great. I appreciate that. And with that, we'll end our time with our guest, Dr. Jonathan Hart, the executive director of the Blackjack Battlefield and Nature Park. Listeners, please stay tuned for my comments and wrap up, which is coming up next. Welcome back, everybody. If ever there was an episode that changed my perspective on history, this was it. Chatting with Dr. Jonathan Hart was a pleasure. He's so knowledgeable in history and able to convey the significance of this watershed battle in U.S. history in such a way that he was able to bring me into the midst of those events like never before. For that, I thank you, Dr. Hart, and I congratulate the people of Douglas County, Kansas, for having the foresight to support Dr. Hart and the preservation of this national landmark. In this episode, we learned that the Blackjack Battlefield and Nature Park is certainly providing the area with some fantastic benefits, and the organization is on the precipice of being even more extraordinary with the completion in 2023 of the new Visitor Education Center, Parking Lot, and Restoration of the Battlefield. This organization is providing the area with many opportunities to volunteer and to have a great time with Pancake Breakfast, Pearson House, the annual park cleanup day in April, tours, partnerships with Baldwin City and other organizations, a series of movie night events with the Baldwin City Library, education of school children, the annual meeting, the reenactment in June, hosting of Girl and Boy Scouts, and participation in the Civil War on the Border event. There are a lot of people around the world who recognize John Brown and hold high his memory. Across the United States in various locations, there are statues to honor and remember John Brown, the first man to be hanged for treason. Affairs of Kansas territory were really messed up in the 1850s and 60s, 
People on both sides of the slavery debate did their best to pull Kansas territory one way or the other, and in the process created a terrible environment for the people of the area. Those activities all coalesced into an American Civil War, which took the lives of 650,000 Americans and the 16th President of the United States. Activities in Kansas were the harbinger of the war. In my view, if there had been more official law and order in the territory at the time, it may have changed history as we know it. Events were spiraling out of control in several dimensions, so it's hard to say for sure. But what if, just what if, Henry Pate was able to arrest John Brown there on the Blackjack battlefield? Would John Brown have gone on to Maryland and the attack on the armory at Harper's Ferry? Kansas should be very proud of their past, and I, for one, am very pleased that the Blackjack Battlefield and Nature Park is being preserved and supported. Please, if you're listening to this podcast and you want to help them achieve their three main goals of restoring the battlefield, building a new visitor education center, and installing a new parking area, then this is a great time not only to show your support by donating, but also to join the organization. The services and events they are able to provide for their members and the public are only going to get so much better in 2023, so now's the time. The organization is supported 100% by donations and volunteers. Please help support the Blackjack Battlefield and Nature Park today. Now, we reviewed the funding and fundraising particulars of the organization, so you know where the funds are going and what the priorities are. The Blackjack Battlefield and Nature Park and the other areas across Kansas remembering John Brown are important. Your folks there shed a lot of blood in those times gone by in the struggle of slavery and abolishing it once and for all. We have largely caused the specter of slavery to dissipate as our country sticks to its principles of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for all citizens. We Americans have put our money where our mouths are, with our laws, our customs, our education, and our blood. We've paid the price many times over, and Kansas was and is right in the heart of things. You can be very proud of your state and your people. There were a thousand questions I could have asked during our time together, but I didn't in the interest of time. If questions occur to you and you'd like more information, please connect with the Blackjack Battlefield and Nature Park via the contact information provided. If you're a listener in the area the organization serves and you're not already a member, please consider joining and supporting the Blackjack Battlefield and Nature Park. Their website is www.blackjackbattlefield.org. The visiting address is 163 East 2000 Road in Wellsville, Kansas, 66092. The mailing address is P.O. Box 44, Baldwin City, Kansas, 66006. You can connect via email at info at blackjackbattlefield.org. You can call them at 785-380-9156. And finally, the Blackjack Battlefield and Nature Park is available on Facebook. I hope this information helps the audience understand how valuable the organization is to the area and what kinds of excellent services they have to offer to their members and the public. Okay, that's a wrap for this episode. Music used today is from Scott Holmes, Cymbalbird, Track Tribe, William Rosati, and Of Shane. In addition, we close today's episode with John Brown's Body, the 1902 version 
sung by J.W. Myers, and it can be found at the Library of Congress. Okay, MicroStream Radio is a registered trademark. You can visit us at www.microstreamradio.com. This broadcast is owned and copyrighted by MicroStream Radio. It cannot be rebroadcast, downloaded, copied, or used anywhere without the written permission of MicroStream Radio. Thanks to everybody for listening. This is Sean Radcliffe. See you all next time on Preservation Oak. John Brown's body, sung by J.W. Myers. John Brown's body lies a mouldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a mouldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a mouldering in the grave. His soul is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. His soul is marching on. He's gone to be a soldier in the army of the Lord. He's gone to be a soldier in the army of the Lord. He's gone to be a soldier in the army of the Lord. His soul is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. His soul is marching on. John Brown's knapsack is strapped upon his back. John Brown's knapsack is strapped upon his back. John Brown's knapsack is strapped upon his back. His soul is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. His Hallelujah.